This conversation is a powerhouse. I am joined today by my friend Light Watkins. When the racial injustice movement started getting steam earlier this year in 2020, a lot of people were making content speaking on race. And I came across a video from Mr. Light Watkins that was very well articulated it was very well thought out it was compassionate however it was truthful it was honest and it was raw if you know anything about me you know that i connect deeply with that type of content content that does come from a place of compassion but it's real i then reached out to mr light Watkins and said hey we need to connect we need to connect. I need to learn about you. I need to learn about your journey uh, outside of that singular piece of content. I know that there's a story there and I know that there's a lot of value there. And Light was so receptive. And I had one of the best conversations of my year with Mr. Light Watkins. Today on the Free Your Energy podcast, you'll hear me and Mr. Light Watkins dive deep. man how are you doing i'm doing well man i'm i'm here in atlanta um just i guess sheltering in place you know we still because y'all don't know how to act right we got to extend this first wave a lot longer than it probably should have been y'all is everybody <laughs> y'all is also a southern term because i'm from yeah. chicago but my my grandparents both sets of my grandparents are from mississippi and so growing up they always would say y'all 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 <laughs> so you being from atlanta it just uh, it feels like home to me yeah 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 i actually grew up in alabama but my whole family lives in atlanta now because it's only it's only like two hours from where i grew up so i feel it feels it definitely feels like the same climate like metaphorically and literally but mm-hmm. um but uh atlanta proper feels like uh like i don't know it that well it feels like i'm just i'm, I'm a tourist here so that's yeah, good do man. you how long have you been in atlanta i've been here since mid april i came out in the middle of april so what are we in july now wow may june yeah i've been here about two and a half almost two and a half months yeah was there a particular reason that drove just, you there you know, it's it's very it's very functional for me being here. Um I've been I've been nomading for the last couple of years. Uh so I moved out of LA two years ago this past May, and I've been I've been hopping between LA, New York, and London and Mexico City for the last two years. And um just doing what I do, doing trainings and retreats and teaching meditation and whatnot. And, um, but I've always done stopovers in Atlanta to visit my family and Atlanta out of all those places, Atlanta is the easiest, least expensive place to kind of hole up. So, um, I got a little Airbnb. I'm living from a backpack. So I, I didn't, I just needed a temporary situation that was already furnished. So I got a little Airbnb and I was, 
and I was going to use this as a time to finish my book and to um, put together some other stuff. So that's what I've been doing. So it's, it's been great. I love it. So obviously my listeners on the Free Your Energy podcast have a million and one questions. We are the type of audience who we, we, we like long form content. We like long stories. We, mm-hmm. we want to know the information. So if I could speak for them, I'm pretty sure the very first question they're going to have is, what the hell do you have in the backpack right now? You know? <laughs> and what? second, what caused you, you, your last like quote unquote permanent residence was LA. What caused you to say, all right, I got to get up out of here. There's some other things I need to do. Yeah. Two very good questions. So the LA thing, I'd been in LA for 17 years and um, I just got the feeling that it was time to make a change. And I've had that feeling before. And in fact, that's what took me to LA um, in the beginning is I was leaving, I was in New York and I got the feeling that it was time to leave New York. So whenever I get that kind of stirring inside, I know that it's time to change something up. And I had a two bedroom apartment in Santa Monica, really beautiful place, about 10 minutes walk from the beach. And um, under market value, I mean, under I was paying under market rent. So it was a really good setup. On the surface, it seemed like I had it pretty, pretty made, you know, and I had a nice little work situation happening there, doing these trainings. Um, and I was traveling quite a bit, but I just decided, I realized that I was, this is going to sound weird, but I realized I was too comfortable and I wanted to shake, th- shake it up a little bit more because just in my, in my work with meditation and with, with spirituality, I had realized that you don't grow when you're comfortable. You only grow and stretch when you're uncomfortable. So, um, and I wanted to just live with less. I wanted to see what it was like to live with less. So I started this process of paring down while I was still living in my apartment and traveling, I would just take a a carry on luggage uh, with me on a, like say a one or two week long trip, teaching trip. And I would only, I would only take what I knew that I was going to wear. And it was kind of like a game to see how little I could take on the road with me. And then I started to notice that there were certain things that I would wear um, and bring with me, but other things that I wouldn't. And I said, you know, let me, what if we just get rid of this other stuff that I don't really use? And, and all of that culminated into this like really extreme, I'm just going to get rid of the whole apartment <laughs> and just live from the carry on. The carry on bag is going to become my new apartment basically. So I went out to the luggage store and I asked for the, the largest over the largest carry-on bag that would fit in the overhead compartment of an airplane because I didn't want to have to check any luggage because that just adds a whole la- other layer of unnecessary um, stress to the travel experience and you don't know if your luggage is going to make it and all of that. And I found they said a 22 inch is the largest you can get. So I got a 22 inch carry-on bag and I just started experimenting with how much stuff I could put, I could fit in there comfortably. And so I ended up with um, probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 items, clothing items and toiletries and stuff like that. And, 
And then over the process of like, say, a year, year and a half, I was, you know, when you're having to carry all your stuff around with you everywhere you go, it's doable. But you start to realize maybe I don't really need um, this big set of clippers. Maybe there's a smaller one or maybe I don't really need four pairs of shoes. Maybe I can get by with two two pairs of shoes or maybe I don't really need a big jacket i can get by with layers and stuff like that so i started experimenting exploring researching and figuring out how to pare down even more and then so i had a carry-on bag and i had a, a travel sort of backpack and i and i decided i'm going to get rid of the carry-on bag and i'm going to just get a bigger backpack and i'm going to merge the two and everything is going to have to fit into the backpack and so i um, was able to get rid of a bunch of other stuff. And actually, the pandemic really helped because most of my business was live events, speaking on stage, being, you know, on camera and stuff like that, where you need to have a certain, you know, you, a certain level of presentableness. And with, with, um, with the pandemic, that even went away. Like, you don't, I, I don't need dress shoes anymore. I don't need a blazer anymore, you know, to do a zoom speech or something like that. And, uh, and so I was able to kind of get down to maybe four articles of four shirts, two bottoms, like a pair of shorts and a pair of pants, um, one pair of shoes and some sandals and some toiletries and yeah. And, and then, I carry around some stuff for teaching meditation and that's pretty much that's pretty much it. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's been a fun process. I'm still going through the process of paring down and tweaking and you know, and when the seasons change, I'll have to get I'll have to get some uh, some heavier clothes and and figure that out, but it's been it's been a couple of years so I've been through I've been through a winter or two and it's not so bad. So here's what instantly people are going to want to know, because when they hear this, this nomadic lifestyle, this, you know, living with less, living, living simple, which I'm sure you would also classify for your experiences, living meaningful uh, and, and giving things in your life a purpose. You know, I 100 percent align with you because I'm the same. Well, I have an apartment that I live in. I should I should say that. But I'm the same way as I need things to be purposeful. You know, if I have too much quote unquote stuff uh, for any pillar of my life, for me, it literally causes stress. Mm. And so what I do is I make sure that I have a, I don't necessarily want to use the word minimal because I know that that is such a cliche popular word. And that mm -hmm. for me has never really been the thing for me. It's really more about purposeful. Mm. You know, uh, like when it comes to like my equipment that I use for doing work, doing, you know, the videos and, you know, like I have a computer, I have a, a desktop, uh, I'm sorry, I have a MacBook, but then I also have a side screen that I use. You know, the side screen is not necessarily needed, but for me, it serves a great amount of purpose when I'm working on my books and then I can open up another tab where I have notes and then, you know, I have notes that I'm using or my outline, which helps me where before I used to only have my computer 
and I will have like these two tabs open and it sounds so weird. But when I have my computer up and I'm working on a, a book or project, if I'm working on a course, like I literally only want this one window up. So it's the main thing I'm looking at. That's just for my brain. Right. And so mm-hmm. I realized I was like, man, if I could just get something where I could just have another screen. And I found this little it was like 90 bucks on Amazon. And it was just you literally just plug it into your your MacBook and. You know, you just have like a dual screen versus like the actual dual screen desktop that's always set up. I just thought that it was so purposeful for me. So I to- I just totally align with you from the making sure you have, you know, purposeful movements and actions. And here's what I know people are going to ask before. They're not going to let me move, move on. They're going to want to know, do you have any kids? Do you plan to have kids? Is this a sustainable thing with children? Um, obviously you mentioned you're traveling. So I think the assumption is that you don't have a car or a car note. Um, before I just start asking the follow-up questions, I'll just start there. So what, what's your kind of situation with that? Do you have a car somewhere, a car note? Do you have children, aspirations for them? Yeah, no, those are again, great questions. I do not have children and I have said, uh, publicly that it would be way more challenging if you had if you had kids and a family, even if you had a dog, it would be challenging to do what I'm doing right now. Um, I do have aspirations to have uh, kids one day, and I'm looking at that. I'm looking at that model as well, in and trying to see how I could tweak it. Here's the thing, though: I'm not looking at this as a permanent thing. It's just, it's a it's a phase that I'm going through very purposefully. And I'm actually going to be writing a book about this um, after my current book is turned in. I'm going to start on this book about sort of travel. Um, I like I like your distinction between minimalism and purpose being being purposeful, but uh, something along those lines. And so I'm I'm that's why I was saying you know when we were organizing this talk. I was saying I don't have a laptop. It, it's not because. It's it's actually it was a it was a very mindful or intentional choice of mine to to get rid of the laptop that I had and to work from an iPad. I've actually written a book from an iPad, <laughs> and um, just to see. I just how... want to commend you on that uh, <laughs> as a guy who's written eight books on his laptop. For you to write anything on the iPad, I just want to commend you. You have my utmost respect because. I just feel like that would be challenging. Yeah, and it is challenging. I'm not saying it's easy, but you know, once you give yourself the, that freedom of of choicelessness, I, I didn't have a choice. I just had to figure it out, mm-hmm. you know. And you and you make it happen. So, um, yeah. And the idea is 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 to just present all of this one day to the world in a way that says, Hey, look, you don't have to go as extreme as I've gone, but maybe cherry pick some, some ways of simplifying your life so that you can free up space to do the things that you're really passionate about. And, um, and so that's what, that's why, that's my why right now with all of that is how much can I do with the least amount? And it's been a really fun experiment so far. But what shoes do you have? I have some um I have some uh Stan Smiths. Those are sort of like my dress shoes, those Adidas white 
uh, shoes because, you know, like we live in an age now where you don't need dress shoes. You can just wear some really clean white shoes and those could serve as dress shoes. Uh, so I keep those. Those are really easy to clean. That's why I have them. And I have some running shoes that I just I just purchased because uh, I've been doing a lot of running where I am here in Atlanta. But I've actually done a lot of working out with my Stan Smiths. So um, that they're kind of dual purpose in that sense. And that's the other thing is to try to find things that are dual purpose. Mm. So, you know, let's say I, I was in a situation where I had to go to um, I've got to go to the White House. Right. Or something like that. And I have to get dress shoes. I'll just go get dress shoes and I'll, you know, give them away at a secondhand store or something like that after I'm done with it. So it's not like I'm, I'm not, I'm, I refuse to buy anything. I just, I just want to maintain the sort of, uh, minimalist, simple approaches as much as possible. I love it. I actually just opened a a screen and it is adidas.com slash Stan Smith. (laughs) I'm about to get me a pair. Uh, <laughs> nice in your inspiration uh i know I'm, i need I'm to thinking, get them to sponsor me <laughs> right uh maybe the black pair do you think the black pair mm-hmm. w- looks good with the white sole yeah 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 all of i love i just love them in general I mean, they're such a such a classic shoe um in general and to have held up as long as it has it's just it definitely it's past the it's been focus group to death and and it definitely is a it's a durable durable shoe and a great look my next question for you, and just so you know, uh, you don't have to treat this as like an interview. It's just a conversation. Yeah, we're just talking. Anything yeah. that, I mean, if you ever want to shoot anything at me, bring it up. Uh, the, the the listeners, they, they just love a conversation. So you mentioned Perfect. that the pandemic really helped you. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think many people would say that right now. Uh, are mm-hmm. there any other benefits that you got or are still gaining from the pandemic from COVID? Well, man, I was actually in the process of launching a podcast of my own, which is called at the end of the tunnel. And I've been dragging my feet and trying to get the book done and traveling around teaching my courses and trying to date and do all those things. And the pandemic just, it, it was, I was like, Oh, I wish time would stand still so I can just catch up with everything. Well, guess what? <laughs> Time stood still. So everything literally stopped and I had nothing. I had no distractions with dating or with anything like that. And I just could work on my projects. So I had an opportunity to really catch up. And I just, I was, I was fortunate in that I had just gotten my advance from my, my book that I'm working on just before the quarantine started and I was planning on spending April and May working on the book anyway. So it all just kind of worked out. I mean, it's to a point now where I've, I've blown through the whole advance. <laughs> so I need to start making some money again, but, um, but it was a great, it was a great opportunity to just put some focused energy into, into doing all the things that I I've had been wanting to do for, for a minute. So now I've got the podcast up and running. We're six episodes in. I've got the book manuscript finished, and we're just in post production with that. And um, and so yeah, it feels good to get caught up. And I'm just getting more and more organized. I'm reworking my website and just and I've had an opportunity to to uh, create some content that I feel like is very helpful for people. So it's been all around. I mean, obviously, you know, 
their people have health challenges with COVID and all of that. Um, and then the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, which I also feel very optimistic and hopeful about because, as you know, that's a conversation that we have been having, Black people have been having for a long time. And we've been pretty much talking to a, a wall. And now it's become a global conversation. And it doesn't, when you say something about Black people or racism, it's no longer, you know, crickets when it comes to the wider white market. Um, you get people engaging on all levels. And I just think that's really, really, it's so different from what was happening a month ago and before that. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to finally uh, feel like we're being heard and we're being seen and our struggle is being acknowledged. And it may not be acknowledged everywhere, but I think it's just great that it's being acknowledged in general. And, and, you know, and I think we have an, we're in a moment where we can make some real progress if we can keep the momentum going and keep the conversation as inclusive as possible. So, so I'm excited about all of it. How does it make you feel knowing that you could make content, which you have, um, you could make a book, do a podcast, you could probably have a conversation with a stranger now about something like racism, you know, inequality, um, injustice or the empowerment of one subgroup of people. Like how, how does that make you feel now versus the rest of your life where you said you, you know, fall on deaf, deaf ears, crickets. How, how does that feel for you now? Oh man, it feels great. It feels great. I feel imp empowered to talk about it. Um, I like how it, it initiates a conversation that's not necessarily comfortable for everybody, and myself included. Like I'm having to look at my own assumptions and, um, you know, and you're getting people from all sides weighing in. So you have like the Candace Owenses and the, you know, all those kind of conservative black commentators, which have been making point, who've been making points that are, you know, on one level to, to a certain group of people, they're valid points. And so it gives me an opportunity to learn more about these subjects on a deeper level than just, you know, whatever's been on, reported on the surface. Cause you, you, we've realized with the, um, with the fake news popularity right you have to basically be your own journalist you have to you can't just take anything at face value anymore you have to go in because there's so much uh sensationalism and there's so much nuanced interpretation of things that if you find some information that supports your argument but it was taken out of context you may end up saying something that you that is actually fake or false or it's misinformed and and so it, the onus is on the the person who's creating the content to go in and research everything that they're putting out there so it's made me more informed and more knowledgeable about the situations and um which i think helps to to um keep the message more authentic and more and more accessible for more people One thing that I'm finding um, to be a wall, if you will, with not just not just that conversation, but 
a lot of conversations is people's personal identity identity politics and mm-hmm. people's personal like subjective viewpoints of the world. Uh, I'm sure you'll probably connect with what I'm about to say, but one of the things I try to teach in my free your energy book and you just you know here on the podcast is that you really give yourself a lot of freedom when you are able to be objective when you're able yes. to just listen to information to a viewpoint to an idea uh without allowing it to trigger you or push you or you know recall some type of trauma or fear but just literally listening to someone's point of view can give you mm-hmm. so much information and it gives you so much power because listening is love listening is effective communi- communication and what mm-hmm. i see as an expert communicator so i mean that's what people call me. That's what I study communications. I don't, I'm not saying that I'm always expert, <laughs> but from a discipline of communication, what I see is a real lack of like listening and like really trying mm. to understand. It's, it, mm. it's almost like when I listen to people, I, I read, you know, I read everybody's tweets. I look at all the, the Democrats. I look at all the Republicans. I look at People on social media, I listen to the conversations that I go into and I just really dive in and just submerge myself in the world conversation. You know, I'm sure you mm-hmm. feel the same way having, you know, a big social media platform. You have conversations with people from all over the world. And mm-hmm. I don't feel like the majority of people give themselves an opportunity to be objective. Like you said, to be your own reporter in sense where it's like, hey, let me track down this information or let me look at this source where did this Mm. come from is this source bias who owns this source who's who's paying for this source to even put this information out there you know Mm -hmm. how much of that do you think we as individuals because obviously as a collective it's going to take a long time but as individuals how much of that do you think is is stopping us and like what type of tips or solutions do you think we could do to allow ourselves to be a little more free uh, as we dive into all of these hard conversations. I think, I think what you're saying, man, is, is a hundred percent correct because not just not, it's not, it's not even really just about, about uh, pushing forth an agenda or, you know, anything like that. It's really just, it's almost like a safeguard for, minimizing the stress that can come from having conversations about politics, you know, cause that's what race is. Race is essentially politics. It's racial. The, the conversation of race boils down to people's political affiliation. And we start in our minds, we start sort of categorizing people as, Oh, they're, uh, if they have any kind of all lives matter, you know, narrative in their conversation we start to say oh they're they're a trump supporter you know they're probably a trump supporter you know and that's not necessarily the case right you have you have a lot of people who are who are just unaware of how that language has um been interpreted by black people and but they may still consider themselves to be liberals or progressives or whatever. And I find that in there's two things. 
listening is one, like you have to really be an active listener and that has to be intentional. It can't, you know, cause it's, we're, we're, we're not trained to do that as a society. And number two, we have to understand that everybody almost without exception has a, has a, their own definition for all of these terms. So you can't assume that when someone talks about racism, that they mean the same thing that you mean when you talk about racism. And that's a part of the objectivity is, hey, we all are going to, we all have our own life experience. And, and if we don't take a moment to just calibrate our definitions, then they're going to end up saying something potentially that's going to trigger me, or I'm going to say something that's going to trigger them. And so that's just a, another thing that we can do in the beginning of a dialogue where it can it can help the other person get to a space of listening as well, right? Because it, you need more than one person listening. Otherwise, it's just going to feel like it's one-sided conversation because um, – and we've, you've, I'm sure you've had the experience too where you, you're talking to someone and you're listening, you're listening, you're listening, and you're really patient listening. And then you, you open your mouth to, to express something and they cut you off. <laughs> You know, and jump all over you, and it's like, dude, I listen to you. You know, aren't you going to listen to me? <laughs> right. So it's it's hard to have a conversation if both people aren't actually there. But the one way you can do that is by just affirming something within that other person's perspective that you find to be congruent with your perspective, and that sometimes takes some mental gymnastics and bending over backwards mentally to find a, a commonality, but it goes a long way when you can have that commonality because then that makes them feel less defensive and more interested in hearing more of what you have to say. Have you been having a lot of these conversations uh, with people who don't, be don't believe in the things that you believe in? Well, Well, I believe in a lot of things. Okay. First, and first, I'm just going to speak from my personal experience. I have experienced racial profiling. I have experienced what felt like to me was a promotion that I didn't get, that I earned on merit, time and title, mm -hmm. and value I brought to the company. I feel like that promotion went to someone because of not, I don't want to just say race uh, because these people were, they were also Boston Celtics and Boston uh, uh, Tom Brady. What was his name? Patriots. They were Patriots fans. So there was mm -hmm. also like that kind of like, you know, what do they call it? The good old boys, that, that camaraderie, the, these guys were from Boston. So there was like that element as well. Uh, but the person who got the position over me, uh, I, I have more education than at the time when I was with the corporation, I had more education. I had a better performance year over year. Uh, I had a higher ranking on the org chart. So I, I was completely dumbfounded that this person got the promotion I was up for. I couldn't, to this day, I still don't understand. Uh, and when I seek the feedback of, hey, why did this person get promoted over me? The feedback that I got from the hiring manager was, well, your district manager vouched for that person and they said that you're not ready for the next role. 
um, the next role, it was about $22,000 in salary bump. So I was making about 75. This role would have been like 97 with bonuses mm -hmm. going up to like 120, maybe possibly if you, you know, if you hit all the, the, the metrics. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time I would have been like 26, you know, so this would have been, I mean, there was no other black men or women in this role in my region. I would have been the only one. And um, mm -hmm. to this day, I still don't know if, if, if race played a factor in that. And, you know, I don't want to say that it does. But then in school, also in high school, I had a situation where <laughs> this is a funny story, actually. Uh, so I used to work at Jewel Osco. Uh, you ever heard of that? Jewel, uh, the grocery store? Yeah, the grocery store. So I used to work at the grocery store. In high school, I used to bag groceries. This was one of my first jobs. And um, we got paid every Thursday. So when we would get paid on Thursdays, I would just go up to the front desk and cash my check. I didn't have a bank account or anything like that. I was, you know, I was just a young kid. And so I would just cash my check. It would usually be like 90 bucks, 100 bucks, and I would just keep the money in my wallet. So mm -hmm. we got paid every Thursday. So Friday, uh, I'm in gym. I have gym first period. And um, the officer, his name was Officer Barry. We had an officer in our school. He, he comes and gets me out of gym class. Now, this was at a time period in my life. This was my junior year of college. So I didn't get in any trouble my junior year of college. I've got good grades. I didn't get in any trouble. So for this officer to come talk to me, it was kind of out of the normal for like my normal day. Uh, and I didn't know anything about police officers talking to minors without a parent present at the time. Like I didn't know any of that. And he's just like, so um, there's a rumor that you have about $100 in your wallet. And I'm like laughing. I'm like, there's a rumor that I have money in my wallet. Who, who started that rumor? You know, because mm. I didn't tell anyone. And he goes, well, John, this kid, his name was John Frome. He was a white kid in my school. And he goes, well, John is missing $100. And he mm. magically have $100. So what we're wondering is if you're the person who broke into John's locker this morning and stole his $100. And I said, hell no, I didn't take that man's money. I said, dude, I have a job. Not only do I play two sports at this school, but I have a job. Why would I steal money from anyone? He said, well, can you prove that, you know, that's your money? I said, I don't know how people prove that they own money, but I do have my paycheck stub in there from when I cashed my check. And I'm on camera cashing my check yesterday during my work shift. So literally me as a 16-year-old kid, I was when I was a junior, I was 16. I graduated at 17. I'm having to defend myself to this police officer that I didn't steal. Um, and I didn't know that I should have told him to contact my mother or father at the time. I, I had no clue. And to this day, I wonder if that situation would have played out differently if I would have been, you know, a white kid. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to race... I can't sit here and say that every, you know, person is racist and that I also can't say that every single time uh, there's an issue that it's because of race. I can't I can't say that. I can't say that I've had some issues myself. I can't say that I've been called the N word. I can't say that uh, I had a kid with his uh, his name was Mike and he didn't like that his girl. Uh, well, the girl that he liked, her name was Natalie. He didn't like that. She liked me. In high school, she was a white girl. Mm -hmm. And he told me that he was going to lynch me 
word for word. He said he's going to lynch me. He said he's going to find me after school. He's going to lynch me. And the thing is, he tried to. He literally died me. This man stalked me, and I was walking to my friend Darius' house. Uh, and Darius lives right across the street from a Menards in uh, Palatine High School. Uh, right by Palatine High School, where I went to school at. And, and so I'm walking up to his complex, and Mike gets out of his Jeep with about three or four other guys. And he's like, yeah, I got you now. About to lynch your ass now. And I don't know why or how this happened the way it did. I, I, I just don't know. It's just one of those stories in my life that I just don't know what would have happened if this didn't happen. But Darius, his uncle was a GD, which is a gangster disciple, which is a gang uh, from Chicago's GDs, right? And, and they pull up in a, it was like a Cutlass Supreme. And this story is like so stereotypical <laughs> for a group of black guys to pull up in a Cutlass Supreme. But they pull up in like this Cutlass Supreme and like four of them get out. And they, mm-hmm. they all pull out their guns. And Darius didn't have a gun. He was, you know, he was my age and it was his uncles. And they're just like, what problem do you have with my nephew? What problem do you have? And they were saying that to the white guys who were literally approaching me saying that they wanted to lynch me, that they told me they were going to lynch me in high school. Mm -hmm. They put their hands up. They said that they didn't want any problems. And they went back uh, into their Jeep and they drove off. And every now and then, and obviously in this moment, I think like what would have happened if Darius wouldn't have pulled up? Mm. What would have happened? This man told me he was going to lynch me. And I was too young to understand the context of a white man telling a black kid that uh, he's a, a white boy telling a black boy that he's going to lynch him. I was too young to really understand the context of that. It didn't really hit me until a few years later when I started learning that the history and education of America that I realized like, when he told me he was going to lynch me in, in school that day, I should have did something to him. That's what I that's what I told myself. Like once I learned, I'm like, wow, like this man threatened my life right there, right then and there. I should maybe I should have told someone, maybe I should have fought him. I don't know. I don't know what I should have did. Hmm. Did he have a rope or anything like that or any kind of weapons? I didn't see any weapon whatsoever. I I just saw the four people, four or five people he was with. Right. Yeah, that's an intense story, man. Yeah. Like that's yeah. Thank God for Darius and his cousins. Yeah. And then I didn't, I've never told my parents this story because I didn't know what to tell them. I was just so shocked that it even happened. Mm. So I've had incidents <clears throat> where race is an element. I've had, I've had incidents where we can say through high school, through college, through professional corporate America, where I can say race is definitely an element. So for me, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can have a lot of these conversations with people because I just don't know if everyone can understand. I don't know if everyone's willing to be objective and just listen like we like we provide for each other. So a lot of it I keep to myself. Mm. Interesting. Okay. What about you? I mean, I someone sent me one of your videos actually. Um I think if the video was titled, and you probably know, it was titled "Like White People." Here's how you can help. What, what was the what was the title of that video? I think it was uh, "What White People Can Do" or something like that. Yeah, it was a video. Um, it was one of the first videos I did about 
about it was right after George Floyd, so about Black Lives Matter. Because before that, I was doing mostly videos about various spiritual sort of you know stories and concepts and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And then that happened. George Floyd happened, and I was and I was I've been doing a video a day. Um. And I thought I was sitting on my couch in Atlanta and I was thinking, what should I do my video about today? And I was thinking, you know, I was, I was like a lot of black people in our country. I was, it was that, that time was very heavy for me just thinking about what that means to a black man dying on camera again. Mm -hmm. um, but this one in slow motion, you know, over eight minutes, eight minutes and 40 something seconds. And, and I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to tell some sto stories about my life because I feel like a lot of people in my world, you know, in the wellness space, it's mostly white people. A lot of white people probably don't associate me with in the same category as George Floyd. They probably see him and feel like, oh, that's a different type of black person. And I need to let them know that no, we're we're actually going through the same stuff, right? I may operate in areas that are less heavily patrolled by those quote unquote bad apple cops, but if I'm in the wrong wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong cop, I I could easily be right where George Floyd was, and. So I wanted to tell some of those stories of my little, you know, run-ins and brushes with the law. Um, and I just, I just turned the camera on and, and, and started telling these little stories. I think I may have told three or four of the stories of being racially profiled and all the way up until a couple of years ago when my last book came out and I was on my way to do an interview and it was a, you know, meditation book uh, with Random House and, um, and I was going to this, my friend's apartment complex. She's got a podcast and I was going to be on her podcast. And I was looking for, I was on a scooter. I was on my Vespa. I had a, <laughs> I had this like nice little Vespa that I would drive around sometimes on the West side of LA. Really nice way to get around and avoid traffic. And I was looking for uh, her parking space. All the parking spaces were numbered in that in that complex and I was looking for her number and apparently somebody saw me, some white person saw me and, and thought that I was looking to break into someone's car and they called the police on me and the police showed up and they pulled me over and started questioning me about what I was doing there. And, you know, I was trying to, I was talking, I was explaining, like I would explain to you what I was doing there. Like I didn't, I wasn't, going into all this detailed information. I was like, I'm here to see a friend. Well, what, what, what are you doing with your friend? You know, they start asking me those kinds of questions and I realized what had happened. And he, and then the cop told me, uh, one of the neighbors, uh, thought said that you were about to break into someone's car and blah, blah, blah. Now I got a suit jacket on. I'm in a Vespa, <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> like, uh, it, I don't look anything like I'm about to break into somebody's car. And if I did, where, where am I going to put the stuff? Right. So it, the whole thing was just ridiculous to me, but it was, a, it was just another one of those things that happens 
And it's like, what are you going to do? Who are you going to tell? No one cares. You just you just get through it. And I got to the interview because now at this point I was running late because I had to have that conversation with the police officer um, who reluctantly allowed me to go and get to my interview. And, uh, you know, and I, and that's just one of several interactions that I've had. And like, like I said, if that was the, a bad Apple police officer, it could have went a whole other way. And, you know, who knows what could have happened? I don't know, but, but I just think it's important to share these stories. And that's what I feel like that incident did is it gave us, um, permission to talk more openly about these stories. And that video ended up getting like three and a half million views. Whereas my previous videos were getting like 3000, 4,000 views. So it was like, Oh wow. People are really resonating with this, with this, um, storytelling and let's, let's keep talking. So, so it was very eye opening. Yeah. Storytelling is, in my opinion, it's the, it's the key for people like me and you, uh, authors, creators, teachers, leaders. Uh, storytelling is the key. In fact, you kind of just triggered a memory I had. It was the only time in my life that it was the second time in my life that anyone had ever pulled a gun on me. But it was the mm. first time that it was a police officer. So uh, the first person to pull a gun on me was my own father. Wow. He was an alcoholic. He was drunk. I don't know what the hell he was thinking that night, but that's not the story I want to share with you. I want to share with you about this police officer because it was really a mistaken identity situation. Uh, I was driving a, this was my last year of college. I was driving a Ford, what is it? Ford Taurus. It was a baby blue Ford Taurus. Young guy. So I had my subwoofers in there and uh, going to the gas station. This is in DeKalb, Illinois. And uh, I turned right into the gas station. It was right off of Annie Glidden Road. And I pull into the gas station. I got my music up. I don't hear anything. I pull up to the pump and I turn the car off, get out. I'm, I'm walking into to go pay, to go see the clerk. And all of a sudden, I just hear, get back in the car, get back in the car, get back in the car. And like I look to my left where the voice was coming from. And this dude, in an unmarked car, it's a police officer. He has his gun drawn, and it's at me, and he's screaming. You hear dogs barking because he had he uh, he was with the drug unit, so he had dogs in the back seat of his of his vehicle barking. Get back in the car. So my heart leaves my body. I don't even have a heartbeat at this point. I'm just I'm just there. It's like I'm almost like a ghost. And, yeah. and you know, so he comes up to the car. And his very first question, he didn't put, he didn't tuck his gun back in his holster. He just pointed it down and he's sitting mm -hmm. behind the, so I'm sitting in the passenger, in the driver's seat. I have both hands on the wheel and he's about to my 45 degree angle to my left. You kind of get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. he's like, why did you get out the car? Why did you get out the car? And I said, sir, I don't know what you mean. I didn't see you. I, he said, I was trying to pull you over right here before you made this turn. I said, I apologize. I didn't hear a siren. I didn't see you behind me. It was an unmarked car. So I didn't I didn't readily just see that, you know, you don't see unmarked cars and think, oh, this car's gonna pull me over. You just our brains just don't work. Right. 
Right. And I just said, I apologize. I did not see you. I was not trying to disobey you. I didn't know. I literally was just going to get gas. And I was so calm when I was talking to him. Uh, then I heard him holster his gun. I heard him clip it. And he said, what are you doing? I said, sir, I'm just trying to get some gas. And I started laughing like that. And he's mm -hmm. like, okay. And he goes, where are you coming from? I said, me and my girlfriend, we live right in that apartment, right across the street, right there. I just came from home. I'm just getting some gas. And he goes, okay. And then from there, he kind of, he kind of relaxed and, um, He's like, let me see your, you know, your license, registration, insurance, all that stuff. So I, sh I sh showed him all the papers. Everything checks out. And then he goes, I want you to get out the car. I want to have a conversation with you. So I said, OK, no problem. So when I got out the car, it, it really reminded me of what you just said. It was like he wasn't like a bad apple. He asked me, he's like, where did you where did you get this car? And I said, my mother's boyfriend bought it for me. He got it from an auto auction a few months ago. I'm in my senior year here. I'm studying communication at Northern Illinois University. And he goes, okay, well, we just, he goes, I work with the drug, the drug unit here. And we got a report that a car like this was, you know, moving some type of weight, selling some type of drugs. And he goes, I'm just going to ask you, have you been selling any types of drugs? I said, sir, I play football here. <laughs> I don't sell any drugs. I live with my girlfriend across the street. I'm just a communication student. And he goes, all right, well, you seem like a good guy. I'm sorry for pulling the gun on you. You have a good day. And then he just goes on. He just, he just leaves. And again, it was like another situation in my life where I'm like, man, that could have went so many other ways. Mm -hmm. But like you said, I didn't, like you were in your jeans, you were in your suit jacket. Like who's gonna <laughs> who's gonna do crime <laughs> in a suit jacket? Like, right? I didn't talk to anyone about it. I, I told my girl, um, but I just kind of was like, huh? It's kind of just life in America as a black man, honestly. Right. It's kind of just how I right. felt. Do you yeah. do you think there's some type of trauma that we deal with that uh, when it comes to the police and, and, and structure and authority uh, that we're maybe not aware of, or maybe we are aware of? Oh, hundred percent. I think it's, uh, it's not normal to go around as a suspect all the time. And it's, I think it's, it's low grade enough that you don't, you know, it's like a functional, you know, have some people, they're alcoholics, but they can still go to work. Right. 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 You can still do your job, but there's something off about about <laughs> your whole alcohol consumption thing. It's not normal. And I think as a black person in America, you have to deal with you have to be on guard more than what would be normal. And then we're just saying this comparatively speaking, right, compared to not having to ever think about seeing a cop and thinking, oh, that could, this could end badly. You know, that's white people don't ever have to think about that. You they don't ever have to think about being followed in a store or, you know, if they go to the grocery store and open up a bag of potato chips before they pay for them, they don't ever have to think, am I going to look suspicious? I'm going to look like I'm stealing these, you know, that kind of thing. I remember, <laughs> this is another funny random memory. I don't think I've ever talked about it, but um, in college, 
we had to bring our own refrigerator to the dorm room. And, you know, so we, we had, everyone was expected to have a mini fridge. And I remember we went out and purchased a mini <laughs> a mini fridge. And I was staying at a hotel with my with my dad. And we got a mini fridge at like Target or something the night before. And it wasn't in the box. It was just a regular mini fridge. And we checked out of the hotel that next morning to go to the dorm to, to get me into the dorm. And we were carrying the mini fridge out. And I, I thought, oh, my God, everyone's going to think we're stealing the mini fr- <laughs> the mini fridge from the hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> we're probably going to get stopped and you know it's like that thought maybe not even won't even cross the mind of a white person but as a black person i'm thinking oh this is going to end horribly you know um and i felt shameful about taking the mini the mini fridge that i purchased outside of the hotel because it looked like you know we were stealing it and that's what they were going to think it's like little things like that but you never talk about it right mm-hmm. you just you just experience it and it just adds up and next thing you know you know you have some kind of heart condition and that's what i think that plays a role in in the fact that black people people of color in general have high levels of heart disease comparatively speaking or proportionally to um disproportionate to white people because of the stress that we carry around with us on a regular basis. Mm. See, there's a connection there. Mm. Wow. Also combined with the, the, the choices that we do make collectively with uh, the dietary life, lifestyles that we choose. Correct. Um, yeah. And I, I want you to speak on this, but I know for me, I had to... I had to unlearn and break up with a lot of the way that we uh, like to eat. You know, my family, my dad was a was a chef uh, and he was a dietitian. Mm-hmm. So he got a lot of good information about food, nutrition. Uh, and it was actually one of the, at least as far as I know, one of, one of the, the catalysts to my parents breaking up was, you know, just the way my mother wanted to feed us. You know, she was, I, know, I mean, it, it was good, but she was making a lot of fried chicken. And, mm. you know, fried okra and just, just so much fried food and lots of macaroni and cheese. And uh, My dad was more of a thought like, hey, you know, we should eat more lean meat. We should have a ratio of, you know, you know, your healthy carb, your your lean meat, some healthy fats. Um, so they they definitely clashed over food. What is your relationship like with food and what did you have to go through? Uh, as far as how you learned to eat. Yeah, that's, uh, that's another uh, interesting point because, you know, growing up in the South, you, you learn to eat for taste, number one. So it's got to taste good. And then you, you eat to get full, right? So you eat until you're full and then you're done. And it hopefully tasted good. And that's it. There's no consideration to nutritional value at all. So the stuff I was eating growing up, man, was like mostly out of a box or out of a microwave, um, had some sort of component of sugar, um, and was instant in some way, some form or fashion. 
So my diet was really sad, no pun intended, <laughs> which is an acronym for the standard American diet, um, up until I was in my mid-20s. And then I was introduced to vegetarianism by someone who was very influential in my life. And I started dabbling in that. And I read the book uh, Diet for a New America, which was by a guy named John Robbins the brother of the Baskin-Robbins inventor. And uh, he was all about veganism and, and getting rid of meat and dairy and all of that stuff. And it all made sense. I was reading all these studies. That, that was like a gateway to a bunch of other books. And, uh, and I, started, I started becoming vegetarian. And then ultimately I became vegan. And I was vegan for about 15 years. And so during that time, I would come home and visit my family in, in the South. And obviously, they would make fun of me and call what I ate bird food. And, you know, um, eventually, they started to appreciate it, I think, more and more. Um, they never quite transitioned over to eating like that. But I eventually kind of grew out of that and I started to introduce uh, meat back into my, my diet, but I never went back to eating that processed sugar that I was eating before because when I even tried to eat like say a piece of birthday cake or something like that, it would give me an instant headache and I would feel completely off. So I just don't even do it anymore. So candy and and uh, cookies and all that kind of stuff I don't even do anymore. I can I can do more naturally sweetened um, food items. I can eat dates and fruit and stuff like that. But that's about as sweet as I get these days. So it's been a long journey, man. But I, I definitely feel feel you on on getting away from the fried stuff and and getting to the whole foods and the and the um, natural stuff and and the importance of that. Not just individually, but as a community, because I feel like we're, you know, and part of it, you could say, oh, it's not really our fault because um, a lot of times black communities are food deserts. There's not a lot of options in the grocery stores, but I think that's changing little by little, bit by bit. And, and I think it just takes more people talking about it. So, and I feel like there's been a very strong vegan movement in the black community with people like Russell Simmons and other um, hip hop artists who have been speaking very openly about about their diet. What's your diet situation like? Right uh, similar story. Similar story. Um, went vegan. Went vegetarian. Uh, introduced me back. For me, it's it's balance. Um, it has to be balanced, man. I'm not into things that I can only do for two days or three days, or I, I need sustainability and things that I can repeat mm. because I'm so, I'm such a simple person. And I'm also a person who believes in processes. So for me, it's like, Hey, what process is going to work best for me? So currently uh, I use a meal prep company and they actually just drop food off for me. Uh, it's already made. And uh, so I'll do that for my dinners and then breakfast, mm -hmm. I'll make make breakfast, a uh, couple of eggs, some oats, water, 
Uh, and then for lunch, pretty much we'll just do uh, a protein shake and like a green juice throughout my, my lunch period. Protein shake is going to have uh, some oats in there, a little peanut butter, the actual protein mix. I use uh, Isopur, which is like the cleanest protein mix I've been able to find. Um, and then the green juice, uh, literally, uh, the, it's, I shouldn't even say green. I should just say juice because really uh, the color isn't always green. But uh, like this week, I did two different juices. Uh, the one I did, the one I'm drinking right now is, is a little spicy. It's uh, ginger, lemon, orange, and green apple. Mm-hmm. And then I did another one at the beginning of the week that was um, celery, green apple, cucumber. And the thing about juice and cucumber is it makes a lot, like a volume. Like cucumber is a lot, a lot of water. There's a lot of water in cucumber. And you really see that once you juice it. Um. So, yeah, like for lunch, I'll do, like I said, the protein shake and the green juice throughout my lunch day. I'll do a small breakfast. Um, of the eggs and oats, and then I'll I'll have a dinner, and the dinner is usually meal prep. And the thing for me is, it's all about what is going to make my life easy. I love mm. cooking, but I don't love cooking every day. I love cooking, but I hate dishes. <laughs> so I try to make it easy and simple and purposeful, and that's that's pretty much what I follow. Um, I could get rid of. I would say my favorite meats are salmon, and I need a good steak every now and then. I'll be honest with you. A good filet mignon is good for me every now and then. You can't eat that every day, though, because it does take a while to break down in your body. So I don't eat that often. Um, But I would say Mm -hmm. chicken and like a fish are the main things that I'm eating as far as meat goes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. I love that. Um, I got a question for you, man. Uh, something that came in to me, to my inbox recently, and I was just curious um, how you would answer this question um, because it, I think it kind of it speaks to your whole wheelhouse of knowledge. A woman, a white woman, messaged me and said, "Hey, I was I've been studying manifesting with Joe Dispenza, and I was wondering how." She said, I was wondering if black people manifested slavery and if they manifested lynchings and if they manifested, you know, all the the traumas that they've been experiencing because because she's not quite sure how to reconcile that with what she's been hearing about manifesting. What you put your attention on is what ends up what you would you end up experiencing. And I was just curious, how, how would you answer a question like that? I think initially there was like this instinctual, what the hell are you talking about? Energy that took over (laughs) at first, honestly, I have to be honest. I think that was the initial energy that took over. And then obviously, you know, I'm trying to, trying to really think about it. Um, It's hard to really say what any group of people were thinking four or 500 years ago. Um, I would love to obviously working in sales, you understand like value proposition, right? Like I'm going to give you this, you're going to get this, right? I would love to know what was the value proposition when, you know, the first people arrived on the coast, the coast of Africa, and they said, Hey, 
you know, give us some of your people. Like, I don't know that history. So I don't know. Was it was it a trade for money? Was it not even a trade for money? And it was just a, hey, give us people. Or we're going to harm you. I don't know that specific part of the history. Um, I believe it was a trade for for money and or tobacco and or rum. So then my next question is, who who was the one saying, OK, take these people, take these hundred. Like, was it a royal family? Was it government? Was it just like who was the people that said, OK, you're going to take these people? You know, like, I don't know. Um, it, yeah, it was it was basically most of the people they were they were offering as slaves were prisoners that they captured in war. So this military giving away the prisoners of war. Hmm. Damn. Well, I will say that to me, it doesn't sound like those people were manifesting uh, to be taken across the ocean on a ship where most, most of them died to then be mm-hmm. taken into another system of imprisonment. I, I don't think any person wants to manifest that, you know, but mm-hmm. just trying to be objective. I remember I had a conversation with my mother a few years ago and she said something like, yeah, everybody wants to be happy. And I kind of bit back at her and I was like, well, I don't, I don't think that's true. And she says, what do you, what do you mean? I said, I don't think everybody wants to be happy. She says, that's not true. Everybody wants to be happy. I said, well, if everybody wants to be happy, why do people do so many things that make them unhappy? She had no answer. And then I said, if you look at life, life is, you know, behavior, essentially, it's your behavior and your mindsets. So why do you reproduce, recreate, and support behaviors that put you in a place of unhappiness, that put you in a lower vibration? Like, what is the value proposition? Why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. So I don't know, man. I, I I don't know how to answer that. I don't I don't think everybody wants to be happy. I don't. I definitely don't think people are saying, "Hey, I want to be a you know slave or I want to be in prison." <laughs> I don't think any person would say that. So I, I I struggle with that question that she asked you. Mm. What have you said back to her? What are your thoughts on it thus far? I haven't said anything back to her. Um, you know, I think a question like that it requires looking at the situation beyond the surface right so that's that would be that would be in the category of say a metaphysical question or conversation Mm -hmm. and so with you know metaphysical obviously means um beyond the senses right so that's it's a reality that's occurring beyond what we can see touch feel hear and smell and uh You know, we live on planet Earth, and a part of the deal of coming on planet Earth is you will definitely get into some crazy situations, just like you (laughs) and the people who want to lynch you. Like, you didn't manifest getting lynched, right? You, You wouldn't wake up that morning with your intention on being lynched, but that happened to you, and you're 
you, you also didn't manifest Darius showing up, but that happened to you as well. And so that situation played out in the way that it apparently needed to play out in order for you to be here having this conversation with me and then whatever else is going to happen beyond this day. Right. And, and look, you could end up in jail 20 years from now. I could end up in jail. I could end up in a very bad situation. Either one of us could. We can have paralyzed, right? Just take whatever worst case scenario that happens and then reverse engineer it. And we have to, as, as spiritual beings, we have to acknowledge that everything that we experienced up until that point led us to that so-called catastrophe, right? Including this conversation, which I'm enjoying, including all the other wonderful moments in life, including all the other crazy things that have happened to us. And so my answer is that the story's not over yet. You know, because Black people were enslaved, for all we know, the souls who inhabited those Black bodies sacrificed their humanity, their human existence for those lifetimes in order to help the collective reach a state of enlightenment that they would not have reached had we not been enslaved, had we not been having these conversations, had we not been discriminated against. And so because we did do that, now we're able to get to a a place of evolution that would be beyond what would have happened otherwise, right? We don't know. We have that's so my point is we have to keep the camera rolling on it. And even if they did, even if the soul did create that contract of hey, I'm gonna go into this lifetime and have this experience of being enslaved, um, because I know that in the long term that's gonna help this society reach a place of true love for one another, universal love. And this just needs to happen. Just like you could say the Holocaust on one level, on a spiritual level needed to happen while nobody wants to be experiencing that on a human level. It, it got Germany to a place where they became one of the most liberal, one of the most progressive societies in, in all of Western Europe. Um, so yeah, it, it's America has has been involved in some crazy stuff, and you know there's the the white supremacy. Uh, well, white supremacy is at the root of all of it, and in order for that to to transition into the universal love and peace that I think we all want, it's going to require shaking things up quite a bit and i think that you know that period of 400 years 400 plus years is a part of the evolution of or the maturation of the humans in this part of the world and ultimately the humans all over the globe i have such a hard time when when we're combining the the flesh the physical representation of the human existence and you know energy and the metaphysical and 
I just have a hard time with that when when I totally get trying to spin things to always try to see what has gained or how you say like the story is not over. Well, okay, stories have you know different incidents that that add value to the story and keep the story going. Where I can totally accept that, I just I have a hard time. You know, I I can close my eyes right now. And there's this image of, uh, I don't know who he is or was, but it was a, a black man. He was looking off to his left and it, he was shirtless. And I mean, it looked like he, someone played tic-tac-toe on his back. You know, this man was just whipped and whipped and whipped and whipped. I yeah, have a that's one of the- hard time saying... That anything positive came from his suffering. Even though we have transitioned and we have quote unquote change, I just, George Floyd, there has been change since his death, but it is, it is going to be very hard for me to say that something positive came out of what he went through and what his daughter went through and what his wife went through. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe I'm just yeah. not at that point yet where I can can accept it. But well, I think that's I think I think that's by design, right? You can't be too ephemeral about these things, but at the same time, you can't you can't be too caught up in the the surface reality either, because that's going to drive you crazy. It's going to make you go completely insane, mm-hmm. right? And that's what I experienced when I was dabbling in my vegetarian stuff. It's like you could that's a rabbit hole. If you go down that rabbit hole, you're not gonna eat anything. <laughs> because right. you're gonna you're gonna know everything is something wrong with everything, basically. Right. Unless you're out there growing everything in your own regenerated regenerative soil uh garden, everything has something in it that you probably don't want to eat. Mm-hmm. Even the water you're washing the fruit in is is tainted to some extent. So you have to kind of, I think, pull back a little bit and say, you know what? Okay, um, my intention is good. I'm doing the best that I can. And uh, and uh, and let me just focus on trying to make the world a better place from my little corner of, of my community. And I think with humanity, it's the same kind of deal. Like, yeah, there's some atrocities happening on the surface, but then also there's maybe some larger purpose to it all. I can't quite see it yet, but I can't also deny that it's not there. Mm-hmm. Like there's been enough stories told in world history that give some indication that there's maybe something like, like you, man, you say yourself with the dairy is showing up situation. I mean, that was perfectly timed. Right. 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 It was almost too, it was almost too perfectly timed to be, to be random or accidental. Maybe there's some higher guidance or intelligence that's kind of organizing this thing. I don't know, but it's. I think there's enough. There are enough clues to give it the benefit of the doubt, and that's why that's what I think is really interesting about life. I mean, I could tell you story after story about those kinds of things that have happened to me, and um, and it just makes me, and 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 I, I admit I'm more of a glass half full type of person in general, right? That that works for me. That serves me. So I've never 
been a person that stews in things that haven't happened. I always kind of err on the side of seeing the silver lining and whatnot, but also having a very realistic attitude about it all as well. I mean, I heard this interview once that the Dalai Lama did with this guy named Dan Harris, who's a reporter on, I think, ABC. And Dan was is a Buddhist, and he practices meditation. And he said to the, to the Dalai Lama, he said, um, my wife and I got into this dispute the other day because she was telling me how happy she was. And I reminded her that in the Buddhist tradition, they say that everything is impermanent, so your happiness is probably not going to last. And she got upset with me. And he asked the Dalai Lama, he goes, what can I tell her to make her not get upset with me um, when I remind her that nothing is last is going to last forever? And the Dalai Lama said, well, her happiness is not, it's not real. It's, 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 it's not stable, he said. It's not stable happiness. He said, true sta stable happiness is when you're, you can be happy with full knowledge that it's not going to last. That's true happiness. I love that, right? Because it takes us away from the either or mentality of either everyone is peaceful or everyone's a, a demon into the both and reality, which is, hey, we all have peaceful, peaceful sides of us and we all have demonic traits that can also come out. If we're pushed into a corner, and we have to react in that way, then we have it inside of us. And the idea is not to see any one person as just one thing, right? It's to see the layers and the textures of that person or that situation. And, and I think that's where the idea of manifesting comes in. It's not really about manifesting something that didn't exist before. It's about placing your attention on what you want to ultimately see from that situation so i think it's really interesting i think it i think it, it 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 challenges us to kind of step out of our own life experience and to have to objectively look at what other people are experiencing in a very intentional way so which kind of brings us back around full circle to how we started in this conversation so what are you going to say to that lady who asked that question? Uh, I'm probably <laughs> not going to say anything to her. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> you, you would need to get on the phone with her and you yeah, have yeah. to go through it kind of how we just went through it. You'd have to go through some some layers uh, because it, it, that question, that's such a great question, though, because it does call for a multi-layered response where we had kind of a metaphysical influence where we had a historical context where it was like, well, Hey, what actually happened? You know, uh, mm -hmm. that question mm -hmm. is so layered. And just going back to the topic of, you know, earlier, you mentioned that race is a politic. Uh, I think that's why there's so much confusion with politics and all sides of, of political debates, because the issues are so multi-layered uh, that is going to really call for kind of like a high vibrational conversation, which is not what it seems like our politicians are into. You know, they're into no. the stuff that we do in high school, uh, roasting. They're into roasting each other, making fun of each other, right? Calling each other incompetent. Yeah. And how did that start? Do, yeah. you, do you know where that aspect of 
uh, politics came from, where it just became like a let me just make fun of you show versus, uh, hey, let me earn respect through intellect and in and, and conversation. I personally don't know where that's. Uh, well, it's like they say, attitude reflects leadership, man. So leader, the leader that we have right now is is basically straight out of central casting from a bully movie in high school, mm. <laughs> you know? So we're getting that quality of, of communication right now. And again, that's, that's, we could look at it in a myopic sort of, you know, tunnel vision and say, Oh, well, he's a bad person. That's, you know, those people who voted for him are bad people, blah, blah, blah. Or we can pull the lens back and we can see how we played a role in it as well. And I like doing that as much as possible because when we, when we play the, and that's another conversation we can talk about maybe now or at another time, but when we look at ourselves as the victims to those politicians or those people, it, it, it disempowers us to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. But if we look at it as, oh, look, that's my creation. That's my co-creation. You know, maybe I didn't vote in the last election. Maybe I wasn't active enough in, in in community politics. Maybe I wasn't informed enough. And so I wasn't passionate enough to help rouse up support for the people that I did want to take office. And so I can do something about that. You know, there's another election coming up. I can do something about that. I can be more informed. I can be more active. I can support more. I can protest. I can do all the things that can make a difference. And when you really look at the numbers, the number of people that could have made a difference in each of those states, I mean, it's really small. It's minuscule compared to how many eligible voters there were that just did not participate in the process. So, um, so I think, I think Trump is showing us a different side of our consciousness. And look, I'm not saying Trump is a bad person. He's a human being like everybody else. He's got feelings. He's, he's got um, his motives and his needs and all of those things that causes him to do and say what he does and says. But, you know, it's not just him. It's not, I think he is a reflection of our collective consciousness and our collective consciousness is obviously in a state of chaos and turmoil right now and a divide is happening. And so the people who are feeling lost need to understand that they are a part of this process and they're part of the collective and that they can do something about it. And so one of the things that I try to do as much as possible is empower people to re remind them that they are co-creators in this whole experience. And, um, you know, it's, it's definitely not the shortcut to anything. It's the long route. It's just like dietary change. You have to be really motivated to change your diet in a way that takes you away from the fried food and all the like Southern cooking and things that we do in Mississippi and Alabama. Like that doesn't come easily. It's a long-term process. Um, usually it involves some sort of illness or some, you know, some stark change has to take place first in order for you to even take it seriously. But when you do, you appreciate it so much more and it, it just gives you more freedom 
in everything because you can always go back and have the fried food whenever you want, but you don't crave it. You don't need it. You don't feel like you can't, you can't go without it. And I think that's where we need to get in terms of politics and just humanity in general, you know, to create that level of spaciousness inside. People need to be more proactive with their own inner work and self-care practices and wellness practices because that gives you the freedom to be able to see things objectively, to listen, to not get triggered as much, and to ultimately become a more of a, a agent for progressive change. As your co-creator of this conversation, uh, I want anyone to hear this to know that you can go to vote.org to get registered to vote. A couple cool things. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some places, you can vote by mail. Uh, your registration to vote, it will only take you two minutes. You can do it as soon as mm. you finish listening to this podcast. Um, you also can get election reminders, uh, which will let you know, you know, hey, elections coming up. They can send you texts. They can send you emails. On that site, vote.org, there's also a polling place locator. So kind of how we used to do fire drills in school. So we kind of knew the the route to go in case there was an emergency. It would be really good to get the polling place locator, go there, find it near your location and just save that address in your phone book. So you know where it is. Maybe do a drive by, not a drive by shooting, but like a drive drive by there so you can see it. You know what I mean? Uh and then also, I think we should, at this point, we should all be registered for the census, the 2020 census. I think we should all have done that by now. But make sure you you get everything uh, accounted for. And if you're the type of person where you're like, hey, I don't want to get involved in politics. I'm spiritual. I just want to control what I can control. Listen to me. Not voting is voting. Mm. If you have the power to vote, if you are 18 years old and you... Uh, I, I think the only people who can't vote are felons. I could be wrong. Uh, but as long as you're 18, you can vote. You know, you may not mm-hmm. be the way I see it is you may not be super into politics. I wasn't into politics at 18. I voted when I was 18, but I wasn't into politics. I just voted for whatever my parents voted for. And I'm not even going to tell you that that's wrong if you're 18. But what I'm going to tell you is that if you can see this and you are over 18, do a quick Google search. Spend 15 minutes researching the candidates for each presidential, uh, for the Republican Party, for the Democratic Party. Do your own research. Don't look at everyone's opinion. Do the actual research of what they've done, what they're proposing. And then also you got to understand that your local governments are also running. People are trying to win different seats in the local government. You can go right now as citizens, we can go. Uh, what is it called? You can go. They have these. Oh, city council meetings. You can go to the city council meetings and they vote on things in your cities right there. You can go. You can get involved. You know, we cannot as citizens of a country, uh, citizens of the world, we cannot just be void of the practices and things that make up the world. We need to be you know, we ne- we may not be experts on everything, but we do need to be somewhat knowledgeable on everything. We need to be able to at least get our feet wet. Um, So go to vote.org, do some research for yourself. You know, there's also, if you don't know which political party you identify with, you could just Google that. Say, hey, I want to find out my political party. I want, and there's different tests you can do that will help determine, um, you know, what you are. You know, and also just because you come up as 
conservative, that doesn't mean you have to vote for conservatives. You can vote for Democrats. And just because, let's say, you live in California and everyone's a Democrat, that doesn't mean you have to vote for Democrats. Like, we don't have to have, like, this monolithic process, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I hear them talking about this all the time, the black vote, the black vote. Right. So all black, like, we can't think for ourselves. We all have to vote for the same person. Y'all, you got to get the black vote. You don't, you've never heard anybody say, oh, I got to get the white vote. Mm -hmm. That's a term right there that to me needs to just be null and void. Like, forget the black vote. We can, we can co-create this, this world and you could vote for this person. I can vote for that person. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be the same. Light, talk to me about your creative process. I know you have a daily email, a weekly email, a monthly email. I know you've got a book, you've got a podcast, you're doing a video a day. Like, how does this, how does this work for you? Talk to me about your creative process. Well, um, <laughs> that's a great question, man. You, you got a lot of great questions. Here. Um, I just, to put the time in, man, that the creative process to me literally is showing up. Like, I, that's the only thing I can control is showing up. So I wake up in the morning, I spend two hours working on my daily email, and then I send it out. And then I get on with my day doing all the other stuff. And if it's the day for the weekly email, I'll spend an extra three hours working on that. And if it's the monthly email, I have a small team that helps me with that. So I put in maybe five hours doing that a month. And the daily video, hopefully some some decent idea comes to me at some point during the day, maybe in a meditation, and I'll spend maybe an hour or two working on that. So you're talking maybe four or five hours working on the content creation and then everything else kind of fits in around that. Um, working on the book, you know, that depends on, like I say, we're in post-production now, but there was a concentrated amount of time where I had to spend hours a day working on that. So I'm, I, I work a lot. I work a lot as I'm sure you do as well. Um, so if I'm not working, I'm working out, I'm going outside, I'm having, dinner with you know friends when there's not like quarantine and stuff but other than that man i work I'm, I'm always creating i'm always writing and the thing is i was having a conversation today with somebody who was telling me you should uh go out and have fun and i said actually i find my work to be a quite enjoyable right. like, it's love, actually really fun <laughs> i love yeah i love creating i love coming up with ideas and concepts and iterating and all those things. Cause when I'm out, that's all I'm thinking about is, Oh, that's a great idea to do X, Y, and Z. Now it's not to say that I can't go out to a museum or I can't go out to a park or, you know, whatever. I, I definitely, when there's not a pandemic happening, I'm out all the time and getting inspired, you know, in different ways. And, but if I have no problem just spending time in the, in the studio, so to speak, just, you know, creating. Cause that's what I love to do. I love that more than anything else. In fact, I'll be on dates, right. Having dinners and stuff. And just in the back of my mind, I'm just thinking, Oh man, I could be writing this right now. I could be doing that. 
and that's become like a, a a standard. Like if I'm not if I'm sitting at a date thinking about all the things I want to be creating right now, that's probably not going to work out for me. I need to be with somebody who can distract me from that <laughs> long enough to uh, to be engaged in what they're talking about. <laughs> the food comes, you got some wine, nice candle lights, and you're like, man, if I just add this to that paragraph, that's going to be perfect to end the book. Yeah, or I should do a video on that. I literally, it's gotten to the point now where I just, I have a note the notes. I mean, I have the notes thing in my phone, but I'll, I'll even have a pad where if I have an idea, I'll just literally stop and, and write it down in the middle of a meeting or a conversation or a date and say, just let me write this down really quickly because I don't want to forget about it. And that way I, it frees up my attention to pay more attention to whatever's happening. So, dude, we are so similar. I have a notebook uh, that I, I have to use. Um, I just got this one a week ago. It's a white notebook. Um, mm -hmm. and so like I went to Whole Foods yesterday to get some stuff, took my notebook with me. And before I went in Whole Foods, mm -hmm. I sat in the car for about 10 minutes and just, there were some things that I was driving. I didn't listen to any, uh, music. I was just listening to silence. And then by the time I got to the lot, I had all these ideas. So I'm like, okay, let me write this down. So it was, you know, creative ideas, but then it was also like structural ideas. Like, okay. Tomorrow I'm going to do this. This is how I'm going to structure my day. Um, but then what I realized was when I looked up, so I want to get uh, a Ram. I want to get a Dodge Ram, and um, yeah, I love those trucks. And I actually don't have a vehicle right now. The vehicle I was using was my lady's vehicle, and I looked up, and it was like the exact Ram that I want. It was white, tinted windows, super clean. Because I'm from Chicago, so black guys from Chicago, we got to keep our car clean. <laughs> and of course. I just said to myself, why didn't I bring my camera? One thing that I love doing is photography. Um, it's not a big part of, you know, my, I guess, social media platforms. I don't necessarily share that with everyone, but I like love photography. I love photography. I love color grading photos and um, just getting it, getting the right lighting. Like I really, really love it. And I said to myself, I'm about to buy a backpack, a small one that allows me to always take my camera in my notebook with me because those two things I feel like can help me when I'm just out and about, uh, just in the world. Now, obviously I have my cell phone, but the cell phone is not going to capture the picture the way that my Sony is going to, uh, what other creative mm -hmm. things are you into that you don't necessarily make money from that have nothing to do with your brand? Man, I, that's the funny thing about it is I don't make money from any of it. Like all my daily emails and the podcasts and all of that, it's just I just want to get information out there. I mean, I'm, 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 you know, I realized several years ago that making money is not where it's at. Right, that's not the true wealth. Like health, obviously, is wealth. Mental health is wealth. But helping people find happiness inside is really what I consider to be the true wealth and my idea of success is is doing my part to make a difference in somebody's life so i'm 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 driven every day to just get up and and just work on that like i'll spend like i said i'll spend i'll spend 3 hours on a video that i put on instagram and i won't spend 3 hours looking at the you know 
SBA loan to small businesses. Like I don't want to do any of that because I just don't care. I mean, I, I, I recognize a need for stuff, but that just doesn't excite me as much. It's not as much like figuring out loopholes in the capitalist system is not that not as exciting to me. Because, you know, you go to – when you get old enough – I'm in my 40s now. You go to enough funerals mm. and you, you, you witness enough people at the end of their life, you know, in the hospital room. You look around. All you see really are family, right? Mm. You see family and you hear the things that people talk about. Nobody talks about what you achieved materially. All they talk about is how you made them feel. And how you stood up for them and how you were truthful and how you made someone laugh and you know these kinds of things. So I just – I realized that's what's really important. So, I, yeah, I, I, I treat the stuff that I do, the content that I put out there as this is not really a business thing. I mean if it makes money, that's great. And it, it sure, it's gotten me opportunities. Like I said, I got – book deals and stuff and that came directly from my writing but that wasn't a, that wasn't the reason why I did it I did it because I just wanted to help people and and that bleeds into everything you know I I, I believe there's no throwaway moment in 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 your day every interaction you have with the front desk people with with a restaurant you know server with anyone a, a uber driver like that's an opportunity to really make a difference to be curious, to ask questions, to learn something, to listen, to affirm, to make people feel seen and heard. And so every moment of every day is fascinating to me. Being in an elevator with somebody else is like fascinating because that's something that can potentially, you know, one compliment, one comment can change someone's entire trajectory. You just never know what it is. So I'm always kind of looking for, I'm always looking for that that thing that I can say or do to kind of help and and contribute and be without being like you know overbearing. I'm not I'm not I'm not saying I get on there and, and you know I become the kumbaya guy. I'm just <laughs> I'm just pre I'm just present and I'm just curious. That's all. Just present and curious. And when you when you're present and curious, then it's just become it comes naturally. And that's. And that makes every day kind of enjoyable and, and small moments enjoyable. Mm. Powerful, man. You're definitely going to have to not now because the COVID and it's hot, but uh, in the fall, you're definitely going to have to make a stop in Arizona and we're going to have to get together for sure, uh, man, for sure. hundred uh, percent. I'll try to connect with you wherever you are. I don't know where you'll be in the fall. We're, yeah, I don't know, man. Do I'm think? completely open right now. I don't know. No idea. Do you have friends or people you know in the Atlanta area? My family's here, so right, right. and that I've made I made I've made a few friends since I've been here. Um but yeah, my 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 whole thing has been kind of in question since since the pandemic, so I don't I don't know what's going to happen. We'll see. I'm as interested as anyone else, but that's a part of the present moment awareness thing. Like I'm not even, I'm intentionally not even trying to plan it. I'm just going to kind of see where it goes. Do you think, does it cause you any stress to stay completely in the present? 
from just from a practical planning for the future, whether the future is two months, three months, next week, does it cause you any stress to just stay present or is it more of a, like a freeing thing for your experience? You know, man, you have to practice it. And at this point, I've practiced it so much. I'm sure there are some things that can happen. I'm sure if I was surrounded by three white guys who threatened to lynch me, it'd be very hard to be present to that, you know, but, um, for the most part, 90 something percent of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I find it, I find it fairly effortless at this point because I've been really intentional about it for many, many years. So, um, so yeah, but you know, life is, life is, is interesting like that. It'll, once you master one level, it's not like you graduate, you, you just go to the next level. And that means that the challenges at the next level are going to, are going to be, are going to pull you and stretch you as much as you were stretched at the previous level, just in a different way. And these are things that you talk about in your book, Bliss More. Uh, how, where can we get your book from? Um, you can get them on Amazon, anywhere books or so. I have uh, a great audio edition of that. So for those of you who don't want to have to wait, um, you can download the audio or, or the Kindle version or whatever, and you can get it right away. And then you said you were working on book two. What's, what's that like? So I'm working on, this is actually going to be my third book, um, but second book with the publisher. I self-published my first book. And this one is going to be a compilation of my uh, daily inspirational emails that I send out every morning. Mm. Um, so that's going to, I'm really looking forward to that because that's brought a lot of light, no pun intended, into a lot of people's lives. And, uh, and I've been wanting to share those with as many people as possible because I don't, I don't keep an archive of them anywhere online. So if you don't, if you haven't been signed up to receive them, you just can't. I've done this for four years. So I've got thousands of these messages that I've written and sent out. And, uh, and there's no way to see an archive of it unless, unless you're me <laughs> or unless you've been subscribed from the very beginning um, and you have to go through your emails and stuff. So it'll be a wonderful gift to offer to the world of insight and inspiration uh, to help people just get a little different perspectives to start their day so how can we get signed up for uh your podcast and your email list all through my website lightwatkins.com l-i-g-h-t watkins.com okay and again what was the name of your podcast at the end of the tunnel which is a play on the whole phrase light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> love it it's genius Thank you.